Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. A special good morning to everyone who's streaming with us around the world, especially my beloved Angelina and Rod in another country I'm not mentioning. Also, to our friends uh, Lauren and Tom Melton, who are up in Breckenridge in the cool. It's not cool here yet, but blessings to you and everyone streaming. And of course, South Campus and the West Campus, and particularly I, I want a, a border at this moment, uh, the Hive. Most Christ Chapelites don't realize that we have a traditional worship experience out in Parker County every Sunday morning at 9.15. I am the venue pastor there, and it's in the student building, which is called the Hive, and we have an orchestra and we have a choir. And so if you live out in the Parker County area, you attend Christ Chapel West, and you'd like to be a part of traditional music, then I would want to invite you to maybe join us next Sunday. But also, we need some orchestral pieces. If you're proficient in one of the instruments, then maybe you join our orchestra or you'd like to sing and have a ministry through uh, our choir. So I think you'll see there how hive music at Christ Chapel and we'll respond back to you. So good morning, everyone. The year was 50 AD. Paul had traveled with his team to Corinth. Now Corinth, let me show you, was uh, just north of Athens in Greece. And you'll notice on the screen here, uh, Corinth was between the Aegean and the Adriatic Sea. Uh, I read that sometime there was many as 250,000 people in Corinth at a time. And for all of you men and women who are entrepreneurs, they did a wonderful thing in Corinth in those days. Uh, they actually carved the first canal, like the Suez Canal. And you would pay money to go, I believe it was a 12-mile isthmus there, and they would roll your ship so you wouldn't have to go all the way around Athens and back up to the other sea. They'd roll your ship on logs across that canal. Charles Ryrie says about Corinth in those days, Corinth was noted because of its commerce, because of the number of people who lived there, because of its Greek influence and influence from around the world with all those ships as a port. It was known as Everything, a place for everything sinful. 50 AD. 56 AD, Paul travels to Ephesus and he hears that the church in Corinth is having some problems. So he writes a letter to Corinth. 1 Corinthians is the book. That's the letter. That's why it's called 1 Corinthians. He writes a letter because he's trying to take the worm out of the apple. So many difficult things were happening in Corinth, and so he addresses those. He addresses things in the book of 1 Corinthians like lawsuits, divisions amongst them, immorality, misuse of spiritual gifts, and today a completely different subject, which I think is the epicenter of everything important uh, to the church. So I, I am going to unpack for us this morning, I, I believe it's the longest chapter in the New Testament. We're just going to take the heart of the melon. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in our series called Undivided, and we're going to look together at chapters, uh, verses 12 through verse 23. So take your Bible. If you have a pew Bible or wherever you are, whatever Bible you have, pew Bibles are nine, it's 961, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to pick up Paul's wonderful letter to the church at Corinth to correct some issues and change their attitude and understanding about real truth in verse 12 through verse 23. So follow along with me, please. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have, been, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. I personally believe this particular text is the epicenter of the entire Christian faith and your experience day to day. You might not have noticed this, but just let me share it with you. There are six times he mentions in this passage, if, 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 if. Six times. It's almost as though he's saying, so what if Christ had not raised from the dead? Stop and think about that. What would that mean to us? How would that change our world? How would that change our future? And that caused me this week to think about some what ifs in, in my lifetime. What, what if, or in my studies and in my experience, what if Martin Luther had actually been captured at the insurrection of the Roman Catholics in 1515 and burned at the stake like his friends were burned at the stake? What if that had happened? Then today, many of us would be of a different faith system, most likely. There would not have been a Reformation, most likely. I was thinking about the space blasts off this last week. We had a few a wonderful space event, so to speak. What, what would it have been like if Apollo 13, whenever that canister of oxygen exploded, what if it had not been corrected? What if they had not escaped into the landing module and Houston had not been able to repair the oxygen problem? Those men would have never returned to the earth. And today, this very moment, we would have a casket of steel flying through the heavens to remind us that science is not perfect and that humanity is fragile. Every time we looked up, we would think of a coffin up there with our heroes. What really got close to me and really made me sweaty was I started thinking about what if I had said no to this opportunity in June of 1975 to work at a Christian camp, a young life camp, with no pay and hardly a place to sleep and just free food pretty much. If I had said no to that, I would not met my wife who now, after 45 years, she loves me and thinks I'm the best thing since sliced bread. And it's just wonderful being married to her. But, but seriously, what would my life be like? Beloved, what would our lives be like without the resurrection? That's what Paul wants to teach us this morning. What would it be like without the resurrection? Now, what's the problem here? The problem is the church at Corinth had begun to believe there's no such thing as a human resurrection. The human body wouldn't raise from the dead. Why would they believe that? Well, the Greek influence was substantial there in Corinth, 
And the Greeks were dualists. That simply means everything that's tangible, flesh and blood, is evil, and everything metaphysical is good. So it makes no sense to the Greek mind in those days that someone would, be, would die, be buried, and come back from the dead and be incarcerated in the same old body. It was repugnant to them, if you will. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, Paul's in Athens, and he's preaching on Mars Hill there. He preaches, Acts 17, verse 18, uh, Jesus and his resurrection. And listen to what the Epicureans and the Stoics said about his preaching. They said this, he's bringing to us some strange things to our ears. They didn't believe in such a thing. There's no such thing as the resurrection of the human body from the dead. No bodily resurrection. And if that's true, that's bad news. And he, he takes a moment in these next few verses, 12 through 19, to give us seven reasons this is really bad news. Take your notes out and look at me, the notes, notes with me, please. Seven awful facts if there's no bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, seven awful facts. First, Jesus Christ would not be risen, but he would be decaying in the ground at this very moment. Verse 13, he writes, but if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Kind of ipso facto. He's arguing that if you don't believe there's a resurrection of the dead, then Jesus, the epicenter of your faith, he's still in the ground decaying. This last week, for whatever reason, I was reading through some history and a little bit about Nikolai Lenin. You know, Lenin was the father of the Soviets. Actually, communism came in. He was a Marxist. And uh, the first Soviet Congress was in June of 1924. And uh, I remember reading what they said about him at the time. He was popular, of course. He had a colossal vision. And then it said this, he saw himself and the Congress saw him as the Lord, he was the Lord of the new humanity, the Savior of the world. Interesting, isn't it? I'm absolutely positive he's still in the grave. In fact, that to be word they use was, he was is the right word because 1900 years earlier, our Lord Jesus, he, he still is. In fact, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and notice with me verses five through seven, what Paul says about that. He says this in verse five, and that Jesus appeared after the resurrection to Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then Paul says he appeared to me. They saw him after the resurrection. He was not in the grave like Lennon. But if we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, then our Savior He's still decaying in the ground. That's, that's bad news. Look, number two, verse 14. The substance of what we preach is nothing more than powerless religious chatter. And believe me, I preached a lot of sermons, and some of it was probably powerless religious chatter. But what he's saying here is if Jesus didn't come back from the dead, then it's all in vain. In fact, verse 14, he writes, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, the preaching of the apostles, is in vain. What did the apostles preach? What should the church preach? What should be the very center of our message? No matter what, don't ever get off of this. It is, it's the eye of the needle. Look in chapter 15, verses three and four. He tells us exactly what they preached. In fact, let's begin with verse one. Now, I, was remi I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, 
which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the preaching. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance, Christian, first importance, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead in general. Of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accord with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. There is the gospel. That's what they preached. The death on behalf of each of us, his burial, a body buried in the ground, and his resurrection. That's the gospel. Somebody asks you, what's the gospel? Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's it. That's it. And they were proclaiming that. And what Paul's saying here is, if, if that's not, if Jesus weren't, weren't raised from the dead, then there's no truth to that at all. It, the resurrection was a miracle. There's no debate about that historically. But it's a miracle that absolutely had to take place if we're going to have any hope or any future. Uh, Buddha, all the Buddhas didn't raise from the dead. Uh, Muhammad didn't raise from the dead. There's no substance to what the apostles preach if Jesus is still in the ground. Look at verse 14b, 3. Our faith is worthless because it doesn't have an, have an object powerful enough to change lives. He, he writes, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. By the way, faith doesn't save us. Faith doesn't save you. The object of your faith saves you. And if he's still in the ground, the object of your faith will not and cannot save you. Number four, look at verse 15. The message and the experience of the apostles was a lie, and we are liars too. He writes, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true, that the dead are not raised. When he says in verse 14, we are found, uh, exposed, we perjured ourselves. That's the word perjure. We've lied about it. And by the way, what, what was the primary calling of the apostle, of the, first, of the church, the apostles? What, what was their calling? Well, number one, number one, we know from Acts chapter 2, to preach the resurrection. What was their qualification? They all saw Jesus resurrected. There aren't apostles today. They're church planners. They can use that label. But the New Testament apostle saw Jesus in his resurrected state. And what he's saying here is, we're liars if he hasn't come back from the dead. In fact, 145 times in the New Testament, this is mentioned to remind us it's about seeing and knowing and understanding. In fact, if the resurrection didn't play, take place, this surprises me when I think about it, but it's reality. Aquinas was a liar. Augustine was a liar. Of course, Martin Luther was a liar. Billy Graham was a liar. I'm a liar. Dr. McQueen is a liar. It's pretty significant truth. Five, contemporary believers are still in their sins if, in fact, Christ has not raised from the dead. And we're standing in the condemnation of God and eternally guilty. In verse 17, and if Christ has not be raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And it's pretty clear what he's saying there, right? There's no salvation for us if the, the Lord hasn't raised from the dead. 
Our sins are reality, but if you believe there's a God, then uh, the God of the New Testament, or the Old Testament and the New Testament, Yahweh is a God of goodness and grace and love, but he's a God of wrath. He's a God of holiness, and you have to approach him based on the fact that you're a sinner. That's the gospel. His death for your sins, his burial, and his resurrection. That's the gospel. And if, in fact, we don't believe that and he's not raised from the dead, then we have no evidence that our sins are forgiven. In fact, they're not forgiven, which is Paul's point. The resurrection demonstrates historically that the sacrifice on the cross that Jesus made was sufficient to satisfy God. Had to happen or we're in trouble. It's bad news. Uh, Six and seven, let's look at those. All dead believers laid to rest are lost and will never be seen again. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You know, we of all people should be very sensitive to this one. There are folks who used to worship with us just only a few months ago, right here in, in this sanctuary and in south and west and around the world. It's not really a very palatable for me to think that I'd never see them again. But that's the fact. Um, that for me... This is serious bad news, real serious bad news that I might never see those loved ones again. The final one in verse 19, he says, the world, the world should see us as pathetic, and we're seen as pathetic a lot, but not just because we believe falsehood, but because we embrace an empty lie about this life and the next life as well. In verse 19, if Christ if in Christ we have hope in this world only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We put all our eggs in one basket. Hey, what about the martyrs? What about Jim Elliott and the Alka Indians down in, in Peru? What about, what about all these people who sacrificed their lives over the centuries? And it's a so what? It's a big goose egg. It's, a, it's horrible. It's horrible. You know, I was reading about Herodotus. I'm sure you probably read a lot about Herodotus, the 5th century B.C. Greek philosopher. Most people know I'm a genius, so it doesn't matter that <laughs> I read about stupid philosophers. I am. Anyway, he did an interesting thing in his life. He traveled to Egypt to look at a different society. He was inquisitive about everything. and he, It was so odd what he saw. He was, of course, invited because he was known to some wealthy banquets. And in one wealthy person's home, he writes that, that this, these individuals in Egypt would take a two to three foot large box of wood, a coffin, and carve a human likeness in it and paint it nicely. And then at the beginning of the banquet at the wealthy person's home who invited friends in, servants would take the coffin from table to table, small coffin, and, and listen to what they would say to the guests. Gaze here. Look into this box. Eat and drink and be merry, for when you die, such you will be. I think that's bad news, don't you? But look at verse 20. Ah, thank God for verse 20. But... In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Stop there for a moment. 
Paul, for the first time, is mentioning this Jewish understanding of the feasts. In the first few verses of chapter 15, he mentions, as the scripture said, Christ would be buried. As the scripture said, Christ would be raised, the Messiah would be raised. And part of that is inculcated in the feasts. Three of the feasts, the feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, and the feast of first fruits all happen within the same week for the Jewish people. This all comes out of the book of Deuteronomy. But what's remarkable is what they teach us. They're all types of our Savior. Watch this. Passover. Our Lord Jesus was crucified on Passover. That's the first one. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His body was laid in the grave, his dead body. Unleavened bread is that feast. Unleavened was means sinless. Our sinless Savior who died as our sacrifice was laid in the grave. And then on the first day of the week, on Easter morning, he came forth as the first fruit, which every Jewish person knew was that festival where they took shocks of wheat and waved it to God, giving to God the first and the best, meaning there's more to come of the harvest. That's us. That's us. We're part of that wonderful harvest yet to come. He's the first fruits, Jesus says. There's more to come. There's a future for us yet. He died on Passover, was buried on unleavened bread, and raised on the first day of the week. And that's good news. Now, so what? So what? We know, we believe. By the way, you're not a Christian if you do not believe Jesus rose from the dead. You now have foundation for your faith. There's no reality for it. The first thing in the Christian faith is to believe that what Christ did for you was accepted and approved when he came up from the grave. Right? But what's the point? That Jesus died 1,900 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and that we're going to be raised from the dead someday? That's, that, that's a wonderful doctrine in the New Testament. But, but what about tomorrow morning? Does it make any difference tomorrow morning? Listen, folks. It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. I told my wife, this, is, this, this chapter is sort of like a bottle floating across the ocean of time with a, with a, a letter in it. For us to read and be reminded of. Look at your notes, please. This is some of my thoughts on what it means to me. This is good news that he rose from the dead. Why? Because the resurrection proves five things. What happened in Gethsemane proves five things to us. First, that truth is stronger than lies. Truth is stronger than lies. The soldiers lied at at, at the empty tomb. The Pharisees lied at the empty tomb. And God knows that today truth is under attack. It's a victim, right? There's no such thing as absolute truth anymore. It's all relative. But actually, that's not true. That's not true. When Jesus was asked, what is truth, by Pilate, he said, I am the truth. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice that. 
The world and unrighteousness suppresses the truth. It's a, it's a lie. And, and I wonder sometimes, I'm sure you do too, what is true today? What's true? Is that avocado really grown in Southern California? Or did it come from somewhere in Waxahachie? I mean, what's truth? I wrestle with so much of that. Contemporary man suppresses the truth. Why? Because if they don't suppress the truth, they have to face their sin. And they have to deal with it. Now think with me a moment. When Jesus came forth from the grave, all the lies of man were shut down. There really is such a thing as truth. He promised he would and he came forth. His resurrection was predicted. He fulfilled the promise as truth. And I wrote this in my quiet time looking at this passage. Without the resurrection, we would not believe absolute truth even exists. There'd be no way to believe that. Truth is indestructible because of the resurrection. That's as Monday morning as you can get, Christian friend. That's reality. Without the resurrection, we would be living in a relative world with no hope, no purpose, no real understanding of what truth is. There's another one. It proves that good is stronger than evil. Think about that for a minute. Good is stronger than evil. Herod tried to kill Jesus before he was two years old and destroyed countless other young male children in the area. Remember that? That was evil. One theologian wrote this, uh, jotted it down the other day. He said this, history has repeatedly taught us that in the long run, it is well with things that are good. And in the long run, it is ill with things that are wicked. Why? Because of the resurrection. Because of that one event in human history, good is stronger than evil. Remember Joseph? Joseph was thrown into the pit by his brothers in the book of Genesis. That was pure evil. They intended it for evil. Not sure they wanted him dead, but they wanted him out of their lives. And then he gets to Egypt and Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him and lies about him. And then he's imprisoned. And yet God brings him out of prison and he becomes the ex-checker of all of Egypt and saves millions of lives during a great famine in our world. And he writes in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, as for you, my brothers, you meant this evil against me, but God has meant it for good. The resurrection tells us that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. Good is always stronger than evil. Keep doing good. Without the resurrection, we're never certain that God overcomes evil. That's the essence there. We're never certain that God overcomes evil. The resurrection proves that good is stronger than evil. What else can I say? You have to stop for a moment and consider what I, I mean by that. Go into Gethsemane in your mind's eye. And imagine all of a sudden a man who's been dead for these several days, the stones roll back supernaturally, and he comes forth to life. It changes everything. 
It also proves that love is stronger than hatred. Love is so much stronger than hatred, folks. It's powerful stuff. The resurrection is the triumph of love over hatred. The love of God conquers. God's power changes man when nothing else can. They drove those spikes in our Lord's wrists. Uh, That was hatred. The world hated Jesus the moment he was conceived, and they hate him today. And yet, and yet, because of the resurrection, the love of God bringing him forth, love is stronger than, than, than hatred, so much stronger. They will know we are Christians by our love. Without the resurrection, we'd be confronted with the fact that hatred in the end conquers. Does that not frighten you? That in the end, hatred will win. It didn't win in World War II. You know why? The resurrection. Love is stronger than hatred. You want to know the answer to the racial issues of our world? That's it. That's it. It's super exciting to read in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 that every tongue and tribe and color of skin sits under the throne of Jesus after their resurrection. Love is stronger than hatred. Life is stronger than death. Life is so much stronger than death. He writes here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. One theologian writes this, If Jesus had died never to rise again, it would prove that death could take the liveliest and the best that's ever walked this earth and broken him. Didn't happen. Life is always stronger than death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And I believe it, friends. I really believe it. Doing some other reading in the past uh, several months. And I read in World War II, there was a, it was actually about the Second World War, but there was a church on the edge of London that decided to have a harvest festival on a Saturday night. And they brought in shocks of corn and all kinds of foodstuffs. And that evening, the whole church, which was a pretty small church, was going to gather together to eat. And the Blitzkrieg hit that afternoon. Destroyed a huge part of London whenever the Nazis came in and bombed London. Completely shattered the church. They didn't have the festival, obviously. It actually reduced the church pretty much to powder. The next spring, the vicar was walking through the ruins of the church after there had been several spring rains. And you know what he saw? You can guess. The corn, green shocks coming up everywhere. A reminder, a good reminder, that life is stronger than death. Without the resurrection, we would, we would believe that death has a sting and that it's permanent. But because of the resurrection... We have to believe that death is actually just the beginning, not the end. Finally, and this is so significant, it proves that hope is stronger than fear. Hope is stronger than fear. Notice verse 51 and 52. 
in 1 Corinthians 15, our passage. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, he's speaking to you and me here. Follow me. Behold, I'm telling you a mystery. We shall not all die, but we shall be changed, all of us, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. We shall be changed. What a great truth, huh? We have a future, a future life. Hope is stronger than fear. And our, our world is so divided now. You know, I worry about us. Uh, our, our world's on, the hair, our world hair is on fire. It's just upside down. And there's more fear than I think I've ever seen in my whole entire life. And uh, that's not a good thing, church. Conspiracy theories, you know what they do? They breed more fear. Conspiracy theories actually kill our hope. Be careful, Christians, of conspiracy theories. Catastrophe motifs. And I'm going to tell you, I'm an old man. There's going to be more coming, like there were the last 30 or 40 years. It, there's an ever-increasing sense that things aren't right, and it frightens us. But there's hope. It's much stronger than fear. Much stronger than fear. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of whatever, I'll fear no evil. For he is with me. The resurrection changes my attitude about life and gives me hope. Truth is indestructible. Good will reign. Love is powerful. Life is stronger than death and hope. Well, it's, it's what we, we have because of the resurrection. You know, I love my wife. I've told you that many times. We've been, well, today, I'm, we've been married 45 years. On our honeymoon, I saved enough money up selling box tops and Coke bottles or whatever. And we went on, we went on a cruise, the USS Norwegian. The USS Norwegian uh, only held 750 people. Today, if you go on a cruise, it's 75,000 people. And, and, and they're dressed in Speedos and T-shirts. And in those days, no, seriously, you know that. To those days, you had to wear a coat and a tie to every meal. We had a wonderful time. And later in the week, we took a bottle. And you wouldn't want to do this today because it pollutes. But we took a bottle and we wrote a letter. And we stuck it in there and we corked it up and we threw it over, overboard. And I thought for several years after that, someday somebody would knock on my door, we found this message in a bottle. <laughs> nah, it sank to the bottom of the ocean, surely. But I bring that up because I want you to know something. In my personal opinion, the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians is a message in a bottle. It's been floating across, uh, if you will, the last 2,000 years. And every time you come to chapter 15 and you open it up, you should be reminded of some pretty wonderful truths because of the resurrection, some, some realities. We only have two options, Christian friend. One is to focus on everything that's going wrong in our world. The other is to focus on the reality of this message in a bottle and be not afraid. Our attitude should be positive. We can fix our thoughts on the empty tomb and the plethora of blessings we have and be thankful for it. If we do, we'll be filled with hope, with confidence, and with optimism. 
that comes from knowing who's in charge and how everything's going to end. Amen? So what should you and I do this afternoon and tomorrow and into the future? Would you read with me verse 58, please? Verse 58 tells it clearly. The very last verse of this wonderful chapter, this message in a bottle, this good news. He says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know for certain that in the Lord, the resurrected Lord, who has a resurrection for you, your labor is not in vain. Hope, confidence, optimism. Why? He rose from the grave. Bless me by praying with me, would you? Well, Father God, thank you for uh, this message, this good news. Uh, here as we complete this series in the wonderful book of 1 Corinthians, thank you for Paul's servants to you. Lord, thank you for what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfaded, kept in heaven for me and for you. Lord, thank you for that reality. Thank you for the resurrection. And thank you that tomorrow I can believe all the things that are mine because of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.